Hey y'all, welcome back to New Slang. I'm music journalist Thomas Mooney. This is episode 209 where I'm joined by singer-songwriter Thomas Chorba. Last week, Thomas was on a short run with David Ramirez and they had a stop here in Lubbock. Luckily enough, we were able to catch up for a conversation right around soundcheck. For starters, it was just a phenomenal show. It's always really cool and special to see a crowd fall in love with an artist or a band that they have just really never heard before. Understandably, most folks, they came to see David Ramirez, but over the course of that 40 minutes or so that Thomas was on stage, he really pulled them in with a mix of these heartfelt ballads, folky storytellers, and a few humorous tongue-in-cheek charmers. For the most part, he pulled songs from his last couple of projects, his 2020 self-titled Full Length, and last year's EP from the Jordan. But, and it's something that we do talk about during this conversation, he also sprinkled in a few new songs that will make his way onto his next record. Two quick comments on what I see really emerging from his songwriting and storytelling. One, it is that humor. You're starting to see a little bit more of that humor in his songs. Something in that John Prine kind of way. Stuff that garners a chuckle, but not at the cost of him saying something substantial. I think sometimes we focus too much on the serious stuff in music, rightfully so. But, you know, it's nice to have some humor in there. It's, it's okay to have some funny, silly songs. And two, he's starting to get a great handle on talking about time, the passage of time. I've said for a minute now that that's what really makes Lori McKenna truly special. She's talented, obviously, in numerous ways, but what I think she does better than anyone else is capture that passage of time in a line or a verse virtually better than everyone else. And some of Thomas's new songs really do the same. He captures that lifetime in a line. You really feel the weight and the magnitude instantly, but it also has a little bit of that residual power that kind of lingers Easiest example of that passage of time that I'm talking about would be something like People Get Old by Lori McKenna or If We Were Vampires by Jason Isbell. Again, we get to some of that and much, much more during this conversation. But first, a word from our presenting partners over at Desert Door, Texas Sotol. Today's presenting partner is our pals over at Desert Door, Texas Sotol. If you've been listening to New Slang, I reckon you're more than familiar with Desert Door by now. In case you need a refresher or just aren't exactly sure what Desert Door or what a Sotol is, well, let me fill you in. Desert Door is one of my all-time favorite premium, high-quality spirits. Harvested and distilled right here in the great state of Texas, Desert Door is genuine and authentically West Texan. Sotol comes from the desert plant it shares its name with. As a reference point, it is an agave. So there is some semblance to a tequila or mezcal. And it does owe a lot of its heritage to the resilient natives of the deserts of northern Mexico and west Texas. In my estimation though, Desert Or Texas Sotol is more refined, smooth, and fragrant than its agave cousins. It intrigues the palate and offers these robust hints of vanilla and citrus. There's a rich earthiness that often sends me back to my own Transpecus and far west Texas roots. There's plenty to love about Desert Door. For me, it starts with all those inherently West Texan roots. But a close second is just how versatile Desert Door can be. You can be down home in a denim jacket and a pair of work boots, just something short and sweet like a ranch water, or throw it in some Coca Cola. Pro tip though. 
get yourself one of those Mexican Cokes when doing so. Or if it's more of a blazer affair, maybe suit and tie, Desert Dora, it hits the spot then too. You can be a little bit more highbrow and concoct a variety of cocktails that call for muddling fresh fruit and sprigs of thyme and sticks of cinnamon. Regardless of the occasion or your preferred style, just follow your bliss when drinking Desert Door. Right now, you can find Desert Door all over Texas, Colorado, and Tennessee with budding numbers in New Mexico, Arizona, California, and expanding across to a liquor store near you. For more on where, check out DesertDoor.com. There you can learn more about their process, history, and what cocktails may suit your style. Again, that's DesertDoor.com. All right, let's get into it. Here is Thomas Chorba. You, know, you grew up in Houston, which is kind of like a, a, a different world than wherever I've been, like growing up yeah, in the middle of nowhere. Houston, my experiences growing up were always just kind of thinking of it as like the biggest place <laughs> yeah. on, in the world, you know. Anytime we went through, it was like, how are we still in Houston? Yeah, you know? it's, it's wild. I mean, um, when people ask me whether or not I liked Houston growing up, it's uh, hard to compare it to anything because it's just what you know. Mm-hmm. Um but the the way that I grew up was very, like, I was an outlier in my high school, for sure. Um, and the beauty of Houston is that that, that being an outlier um, wasn't met with uh, nothing to do, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was kind of square at school or into music or whatever, I was able to travel to other parts of Houston and go see a show at the Mucky Duck or... Um, back in the day, there was a, it may still be around a club called Fitzgerald's. Um, I saw a bunch of shows at, um, so there, there was a lot of culture and life outside of my high school bubble, which a lot of small town kids don't get to have. Um, and a lot of suburban kids don't get to have, you know, so being close to, you know, Houston, pro- like kind of Houston proper, um, was super beneficial. Um, cause I got to see a bunch of shows and, um, you know spend time like embracing the 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 culture of Houston super diverse culture of Houston. Yeah, well that's that's why I bring it up is like if I was wondering if your your experiences growing up were that suburban life or the you know were you able to you know just take advantage of there being a diversity. Yeah. Being that as you kind of just mentioned uh even if you're an outlier you kind of are able to find other outliers other yeah. uh groups of people who are you know, not thinking about the uh, the Friday night football game. Right, you know, yeah, and I, like I rarely, you know, I think my first, the pr- first party I went to in high school was uh, senior prom, and that's because I was dating a cheerleader who, you know, was yeah. popular, um, <laughs> which was even funny that she dated me, uh, but that's just a blast from the past. Um, so, yeah, I, I spent most of my Friday nights, like, in my room writing or going to shows or looking through records or, um, you know, I started recording music when I was 16 years old, driving to Austin to do it, um, with a guy named Brian Douglas Phillips. Um, and, uh, spending time with him in Austin and getting to know his guys and the session players that he was working with that opened my eyes as well. So the people I was spending the most time with when I was in high school in their thirties and you know, professional musician, mu- musicians. So it was kind of a weird high school experience, but um, I wouldn't have traded it with, for the world, you know? Yeah. Well, so, you know, like for 
for comparison's sake, you know, growing up in Fort Stockton, yeah. going nowhere, I still think like my idea of like where where the music was, yeah, was Austin, yeah. Uh, was that still the very much the same thing for you, or or did you? I didn't. I didn't did think under- about it. I I didn't. I don't think I understood um, or really thought about the idea of like music industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a youth pastor when I was in high school that introduced me to Brian because him and his buddies made a record with Brian and Austin. So it was just like, oh, here's this guy that would be interested in making an album. He so happens to live in Austin. Yeah. So I started driving out there and, you know, um, you know, missing a little bit of class to go spend a few days in Austin to record. So, um, but I don't think it dawned on me that like, oh yeah, Austin's the place to make music necessarily or Nashville's this like place you go to quote unquote make it. Um, I think going to Austin to make those recordings was just a means to make those recordings. And it was as simple as that. Yeah. What was the, I always find like this to be a really interesting time in, in someone's life is the, was there like that artist or that person or that, that time when, when you, you kind of realized or, or discovered quote unquote discovered music outside your parents' music that you felt was your own that like, okay, this is something yeah totally different than what they're doing. It's a great, it, co- it's, it's my thing. Yeah. It's a great question. My, my, uh, my parents were like semi musical, you know, my, my dad, you know, they're, they're not musicians. Um, I grew up around church music and that world. Um, my dad liked Buddy Holly and Tom Petty and stuff like that. He's from, he's a, he's a, uh, California kid. Um, my mom was from Texas, so she sang Willie Nelson songs to me to go to sleep and stuff like that. Um, where I really felt like I, I claimed ownership of like a style of music and like, oh yeah, I'm really into this thing was through my brother, my older brother. Um, he's about probably six or seven years older than me. Um, smarter than anybody he's met, you know. Um, but he was the, um, he was my gateway into, uh, guys like Towns Van Zant saying, this is good stuff, making my, making me digest it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting me hooked on it, me really liking it, and him saying, okay, if you like Towns, you have to like Lightning Hopkins, because Towns is obsessed with Latin Hopkins. And if you like Latin Hopkins, you have to be obsessed with all these people, you know, all these Texas blues men um, that have kind of built the bedrock of what we know as Texas or American music. So um, he taught me that lineage, um, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old. Um, and I'm forever indebted to him because I think it was uh, a really good lesson to learn to know where where the music I love I, I love comes from, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that's that's when I started to really embrace. Like, okay, I, I I can see I can see that I like this stuff, and I'm starting to understand why, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's p- pretty pivotal moment in anybody's music listening, you know. Yeah. Uh, journey. Yeah, usually, like you know, those those first records that you rebel against your parents listening yeah you kind of go back now and you're like oh it's not either, it's either not that great or you're kind of embarrassed by it or yeah. there's like this weird mix of nostalgia yeah but if it, if it's something like like the towns or yeah you know the uh i know you've mentioned like guys like willis allen ramsey or, yeah or like guy clark or something like that 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 it's timeless yeah 
it doesn't matter when you really kind of get into it, you can appreciate yeah. the, the greatness of it. That's a, uh, that's really interesting. Cause I, I yeah. feel like, you know, like the first time I listened to towns was, um, I had read it in a, a magazine about, you know, oh, you want the saddest thing ever, yeah. you know, like that. And of course, like he, he does have plenty of different sure. kinds of songs, but you know, that, that's what I was gravitating towards. Was yeah. like, you know, Oh, okay. Well, I, I love bright eyes and like yeah. Elliot Smith. Well, this is something sad too. Right, like, right. you know, you try and go and find that knife. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So there's definitely that. And that's like the, you know, the interview sexy side of the stuff that I liked, you know, um, the Willis Helen Ramsey towns, yeah. Guy Clark stuff. But I was also, you know, my brother introduced me to Sufjan Stevens when mm, I was in, yeah. in like middle school, um, and death cab and bright eyes and that kind of stuff that he was really into that I kind of piggybacked off of. Um, and it's fun now listening back to that stuff. It's, it's, uh, um, it was cool and still is cool for a certain reason, you know? Yeah. Um, not just nostalgic, you know, I think that's, such great. Yeah. The, uh, I think there's a lot of music that, that it, it, if, if you're going to get into it, it has to come at a certain time mm-hmm. or just, it's kind of the same thing with books, like with, with certain writers. Um, like J.D. Salinger catching the rye, I think yeah. is the best example of like that makes a lot of different sense, or it makes a a lot of different points rather when you're 30 than it did at 15. Yeah, and, and um, there's there's a lot of stuff I liked at 15 or 16 that I thought was the greatest thing in the world. Yeah, that you know, if I read it now, I, I'm kind of going, man. You know, like the main character is, is an asshole versus yeah. you know, like the yeah. the antihero that we all wanted to yeah. believe in or something. It's funny. I think the the best art does that. You know, it's mm-hmm. the kind of stuff that you can come back to fifteen, twenty years later, and it um, y- you grow around it. You know, and it's kind of this um, uh, uh, I guess this like fixed piece of uh, of art that that you get to start seeing from different perspectives, you know, mm-hmm. and I think the best art is able to be looked at from different perspectives and, and, and different conclusions can be drawn from it. So, um, you know, that's obviously like myself as a 25 year old is listening to towns way differently than I was as a 16 year old. Um, and, uh, I, I think that's really v- valuable to understand and to notice. Um, you know, I, I think that's the mark of good, honest yeah. work. Yeah. Well, how do you, I mean, I, this is maybe the unanswerable, but like how do you apply that to your own writing to to understand there, to maybe have that foresight? Yeah, I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> I think like, you know, because you can make a, a claim that like, yeah, if, if you're honest about it or if you, whatever. Um, but But I still feel like there are, some Towns Van Zandt songs that he would say, yeah, this one just showed up, you know, and it just exists. And I was open and I wrote it down and there it is. And now it's waiting around to die or something. One of these songs that's like on the Mount Rushmore, you know? Right. Um, so I, I don't know, but, uh, there definitely has to be an openness, you know, um, to write things that are outside of you. And I think that's something I struggled with in those years in high school was like, I'm a, um, I'm a middle to upper class kid in Houston. 
um, I have everything I need and most of what I want, you know? Right. Um, I don't have anything to say. Um, I haven't lived any life. I haven't, you know, I've been lived in the same house since I was a kid, whatever, those kind of things. So it's like, what do I have to say? What do I have to contribute? Um, but I, you have to like check yourself on those kind of things because the best kind of art is, is aside from just the things that we experience, you know, um, you think about imagination and living through other people's um, experiences and um, reading and learning and paying attention to the world around you. So I'm, I, I'm still learning that, that there's beauty in everything, you know, and um, everything might be worth writing about. Um, everything's at least worth paying attention to. Right. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think that spirit and that ethos kind of helps drive the kind of art that, that survives, you know, because right. it kind of leads to these universal truths maybe that, that um, survive past us, you know. Yeah, what, what, what I think about is, is most of the, the, the great stuff that I, that I think that most people love, um, one of the, the, the purest, I guess, um, aspects of, 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 a, of some of our favorite writers is that they're always um, empathetic to, to whatever they're writing about. Yeah. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know, just writing about just the, the woe is me of, of, the, of whatever character it is, mm-hmm. but they don't dismiss the, the idea of like this person being a person with these motives that may be drastically different from, yeah. from what they uh, grew up with or their own morals or their own character. Yeah. I think that's what I love the most about Randy Newman stuff. Cause he's, or like the John Prine angel from Montgomery example, mm-hmm. um, hopping into somebody, you know, especially in Randy Newman, like good old boys, which is a tragic listen. Yeah. Absolutely tragic listen. Um, but somehow, uh, brings the listener a different sense of compassion towards that kind of human, you know? Um, I think that kind of empathy is, yeah, the, the, uh, has to be the guiding light in writing, um, songs that contain so much humanity, you know? Yeah. Um, which all of my, all, all of my favorites are, you know, these songs that really embody humanity. Yeah. Yeah, I just got some some new Randy Newman on vinyl the other yeah. day. Uh, a guy was selling, I guess, like uh, what did he have? Uh, Trouble in Paradise, cool. Um, good old boys. Yeah, what which is that on? Is that the title or is that something yeah, else? Yeah, Good Old Boys has Marie and Birmingham yeah. and, and there was Rednecks. another one, but yeah, but he's such a little criminals. It's great. Um, yeah, I, but yeah, it's all these like. I don't know what record it's on originally, but there's a, a song uh, called Political Science mm-hmm. um, that's totally like evil villain um, kind of perspective. Um, but he's like, yeah, it's it's just great. It's, it's so tongue-in-cheek, and um, you just smile listening to it because it's so ridiculous. This episode is brought to you by our partners over at the Blue Light Live here in Lubbock, Texas. Blue Light has long been the epicenter of the Lubbock songwriter scene and has been a prestigious home away from home for some of Texas Americana country and rock and roll's finest over the decades. Talk with a songwriter who's come out of Lubbock, West Texas, or the Panhandle the last 20 years 
and 99.9% of them are going to tell you just how integral and necessary the blue light has been in their come up as a songwriter and a performer. With live original music just about every night of the week, head on over to bluelightlubbock.com to check out their schedule. I know over these next few months, you'll be seeing folks like Roger Klein and the Peacemakers, Grady Spencer and the Work, Josh Weathers, Troy Cartwright, David Bex, Tahano Weekend, Tristan Merez, and Braxton Keith grace the Blue Light stage. Again, that's bluelightlubbock.com. While there, check out their merch page. They have a wide range of hats, beanies, sweaters, hoodies, jackets, and koozies. You can get all your merch needs while seeing your favorite band take the stage by just asking your bartender, and they'll get you set up as well. And of course, this should go without saying, but make sure you tip your bartenders and buy some merch from the band while you're at it. That's 1806 Buddy Holly Avenue, Lubbock, Texas, bluelightlubbock.com. Pretty good chance I'll see you there. Okay, let's get back to the show. No, that stuff that stuff is really great. Yeah. Um, that stuff has a... Uh, um, it brings a level of humor to, to some of the really mundane and um, maybe sad or maybe unnoticeable things of the American life. You know, right. Um, that's why I love it so much. Um, he seems to really have a, a great perspective, at least really open eyes in his writing about things that are like, oh, yeah, I never would have thought to say like kangaroos in a song. You know? Yeah. Well, him and we mentioned Prine a bunch. Yeah. What I've loved so much is how those guys have like the, the longevity mm-hmm. of their career and like being able to be sharp songwriters for. Yeah that long and having something to say for that long yeah is is really kind of amazing yeah i think they i think um part of that is is that mindset it's that openness it's like the um the reason why john prine well there are a million reasons why john prine um could and would um have an entire audience in the palm of his hand um, till the moment that he passed, you mm-hmm. know, um, was because there was so much empathy in those songs. Um, I don't know. He's, it's so hard to explain, but you see it and it just, it, it's like the, the narrative. It's like the, the, uh, I don't know how to explain it. Um, it's just like the perfect mix of, uh, speaker, um, Versus storyteller, you know, mm-hmm. like who's the character and who's saying it because Prine as an entity, you know, him, this old man standing up there with all these stories is just as good and just as interesting as the stories themselves. Yeah. You know, um, I guess that's what I'm trying to say is when those two things meet in a, in a really beautiful way when he's on stage. Yeah. Well, it's like the, the, the care, like, I guess like what you're kind of talking about is like him being john prine but then like the idea of john prine yeah the songwriter and then the storyteller yeah and like it's you can say the same thing about obviously a bunch of really great artists that maybe like they're uh like the idea it's maybe and this is probably different from for everybody it's the idea of who you of that person in in your head because like maybe my version of john prine is different than your version sure on stage um I, I also just I find like the, it amazing the uh, 
the drive that these guys have had mm-hmm. in their older years. Because same yeah. thing with like Leonard Cohen. Yeah. It felt like he would go a decade without putting a record out. And then he almost knew like, I don't only have like this much time. And he got like three records out. Yeah. In, in his very end of his life there. Yeah. That stuff's crazy to me. You know, like when, when Prine put out the tree of forgiveness, um, and the, you know, the last song and that, that record is when I get to heaven, you mm-hmm. know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to shake God's hand. Um, I heard that and I was like, this is, um, sadly could be such a beautiful way, um, to just leave, you know, to, to right. book into your catalog, I guess. Um, and he, he did, I remember everything, which is really beautiful. And, um, you know, they were able to, um, release that, but I, I, um, I, I don't know what kind of future I have in making music. I don't know if I'm going to be the guy that's, you know, 60, 70, 80 years old up there still telling stories and smirking, you know, like, like yeah. a prime would. Um, but, uh, I hope to be able to look back and have a, a catalog of work, you know, um, to leave behind that, that seems really important and exciting to me. Um, both for myself, but also for, for my kids and my grandchildren, hopefully, you know, like, oh yeah, it's a cool thing my grandpa did. Um, my, my, I have a buddy who, um, I was, I lived in Waco for a while. My buddy, his name is John McKay and he's a great, John Griffin McKay, I think his music's released under, he's a great songwriter. Um, he lives out in Memphis now, but, uh, he has these old records of, I think his grandpa as like a church, um, the gospel singer. And it's the coolest thing because it's, you know, he has his family's piano and it's just like this certain vibe, you know, 70s gospel music. Um, and it's a cool family heirloom, you know. Um, I would love to have a collection of those things to leave leave my family. Yeah, that's something that um, I think you know Ryan Colwell, right? Yeah, I know Ryan. We, we've talked about the this idea of him, like maybe like the the most interesting part of him being a songwriter is that like he's created this like family mythos of like these songs are like written with like intention of uh, with my daughters, but also like with the intentions of like hopefully these songs become like our fairy tales in, yeah. in some sense or some respect of like I where, hadn't heard that that's cool where, like you know great grandkids down the line or are singing songs because like that's like their thing. You know? Yeah. In the same way. I, I like that. I haven't thought about that and I haven't heard Ryan talk about that, but, um, they're kind of like, Oh yeah. My grandpa always had this story, you know? Yeah. And instead of saying that, it's like, Oh yeah, there's this song my family always sang, you know, mm-hmm. that's a pretty cool, um, pretty cool heirloom, you know? I yeah. like that. Well, I, I think that's a, such a really fascinating, interesting thing. It, Cause it is like the, the old family, story of like okay we've heard grandma say like Uh every time this i don't know whatever every time like this dish is brought out right she has a story about whatever right but you know in this form it's like you know 50 songs yeah (laughs) that's so cool that is so cool i hope you know there's also a good chance that i make a bunch of records and my kids don't care at all (laughs) um which is fine too um Maybe maybe a great nephew or somebody one day would be like, wait, no, that's that, that's kind of cool, you know. Yeah. <laughs> feels like feels like me. Feels like an outlier in high school, and you know, find some sort of 
um, uh, meaning in somebody from his bloodline, you know, having made something. I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, there, there's something very, sometimes I, I probably worry too much about that, that, that kind of thing where maybe it's not for me, it's not songs or stories like that, but you know, like my, my book collection, like yeah. my record collection. What if like my kids just find that as like a burden? Right. right. You know what I mean? Like, Oh yeah. I'm just going to like throw it on the side of the road kind of thing. Yeah. I know plenty of style. people that's like, um, my, in my wife's family, it's like when her grandmother passed away, it was this, uh, just the, the estate plant, like all the stuff, yeah. the logistics of somebody passing is so hard. Um, that it's like what what can I leave that's that's worth leaving and is not going to be a burden on my family. Yeah, um, that's interesting to think about. Yeah, well, I, I've jokingly said you know like my inheritance is uh, was put in like the form of Beanie Babies. Yeah, you know like that's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish I still like, had some stuff of those. like that. You know that like <laughs> yeah. You kind of think, oh God, yeah. Why, why did you? Uh, why did, why did, why was my family deciding like why did I guess that was every family probably the beanie babies thing but you right know. right <laughs> yeah that strange thing that we collect uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> those things are valuable now at least it's a few of them <laughs> yeah that's the I saw some like it was either like on, it was on like one of the there was like a little documentary about how. And I say documentary, it was more just like a TV program yeah. about how Beanie Babies just came around at the right time as like the internet because like that's what really oh, that's cool. blew it up. Yeah. It's like this idea of them being uh, more scarce than, yeah. than than anything else. And it was the list and like, right. you know, uh, and they, they showed like the, the, the Beanie Babies website and it's like, oh my God, like, you know, that, that looks like a it's junior pretty, high MySpace pretty awful. page, yeah. you know, like that kind of thing. My, uh. Uh, are you familiar with Robert Ellis in yeah. Texas? Yeah. Have you seen his website recently? I have not. It, no. You got to go look it up. It's so <laughs> great. It's like purposefully looks really buggy and um, it's super sales pitchy and uh, kind of like what a Beanie Babies website might have looked like in the yeah. 90s. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's yeah. great. This episode is in part brought to you by Charlie Stout Photography. I want y'all all to head over to charliestout.com right now to get a glimpse of his work. While you're at it, go give him a follow on Instagram and Twitter at charliestout. Right now, he has more than 50 photographs for sale on charliestout.com with a diverse selection of landscapes and sky shots of West Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. Open roads and windmills, sunsets and stardust, cotton rows and cacti. He captures a lot of what I love about West Texas and the great american southwest the depth the way and raw intensity is all there in his photography he captures that struggle between man and the land it's mother nature reclaiming objects like rusting tractors and abandoned homesteads or it's man wrangling the wild and trying to put his impression on the land with rows of cotton or colossal windmills or iron orchards pumping oil from the deep dark below And sometimes it's just the raw beauty of a mountain breaking up limitless sky or a setting sun leaving the day behind. At any rate, Charlie's photographs move you. Maybe there's a little bit of that I ain't crying that's just West Texas in my eye in all of Charlie's photos. 
Again, go visit charliestout.com and order yourself a photograph or two. Also, a pro tip, keep an eye out on his Twitter. He's consistently posting one-offs and errors and randoms on there that are available in the flash sale variety. Again, that's at Charlie Stout. Head on over to charliestout.com. Grab a signed print, buy a record. It's good for your soul. All right, let's get back to the episode. I wanted to go back on to, you know, you mentioned something about art maybe being static or like it being a certain kind of thing. And we are the ones who are growing around it. And that's how you get perspective. Yeah. Um, in saying that, like for you, like when, when there's a song that I guess, like how, how does a song grow for you uh, over time or, or my own songs? Yeah. Or other, like, other people's yeah, songs, your own songs. And well, like, do, you, do you find like you've start performing them differently or, yeah. or, or, Whatever the case is. Yeah, it's so interesting because there, there are um, different lives which within my songs, right? There's a, a, a demo version, like the, the instinct kind of thing that comes out, right? Yeah. And that's its own thing. And that's going to stay in my Dropbox folder for as long as my Dropbox will hold it because I want to go back and listen to that in 10 years. Yeah. Um, so there's like there's that version of it. There's a recorded and produced version of it. Um, which is a, a bit more final, and that one's on you know on wax. It's on vinyl, and it's on a CD, and it's on DSPs. So it's that's that fe- that one feels like more of a stake in the ground. Right. Um, but the beautiful thing about you know being here in Lubbock and playing a show is that um, all these songs uh, can be played in an infinite number of ways that the way that I'm going to play every song I play tonight um, will never be identical to the way I play it again. Um, and the the mystery of that is so beautiful to me. Um, and it's the reason why I love doing it, because you can walk off stage and be like, whoa, I didn't know I could do that with that song. Or I didn't know that song could um, do that to me, <laughs> you know, or, right. or spill out in that way. Um it's interesting. I'm I'm putting songs together for a new record right now, and so I haven't, you know, I've probably got twenty twenty five songs that, um, which is a lot for me. I've never had this much going into making a record, um, but all these songs that I'm choosing from and trying to find the through line through and where are gaps in the story and you know trying to make a narrative out of this record, um, and I've spent so much time with these songs on my couch in my living room. Um, Luckily, now that, you know, I'm able to play some more shows and get out and about, um, I've started to watch these songs blossom on stage, you know. What words um, uh, end up sounding important, you know, to me in singing that song? Which words do I say and I hear somebody kind of, like, chuckle, you know, from the audience because they thought it was a good line or something? Um, that stuff's really, really cool and really unique. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how that affects my actually recording these songs. Um, I think that this record more than any other is going to feel more performance oriented, you know, um, because I've spent so much time, uh, one-on-one with the songs. Whereas in the past, it's kind of been like, yeah, I wrote this song. I've played it a few times. Let's see if we can make a studio version of it. Um, right, if that makes sense. So yeah, no, it very much does. They've uh, they're definitely taking shape um, in their own shape, 
in a really uh, cool and, and different way. So um, I know I kind of rambled there, but but yeah, they they kind of they're different lives of these songs, and you know the recorded versions are really cool to go back and listen to. Um, but the beauty of them is that like you know a song I wrote when I was fifteen, uh, Harvest, which I sing almost every night. Um, I, I sing it so much differently now on stage than I did when I was that age. Um, and there's something really beautiful to that because those lines mean something different to me now. Yeah. See, that's that's why I've never been mad at like Bob Dylan for yeah changing the way something sounds yeah. 40 years down the it's line. It's like, yeah, do your thing. Have fun. You know, it, it's it's different. Yeah. You're, you're kind of a different person or you, you do find the... Uh, I, I like the uh, the atmosphere, the mood that this song is if I play it on piano or yeah. whatever the case. You said something really, really interesting there, though, about maybe like these songs are or are breathing a little bit more, maybe like you're, you're letting them have them a little bit more space on stage yeah. to, to work themselves out versus maybe perhaps in the in the past, like that's either been in the studio or I've noticed this with a lot of songwriters. They're always just kind of in the back of the head. Yeah. And you're kind of maybe working them in that way. Yeah. Where maybe this one is a little bit more out in the open. Yeah. I, th- I think like in the past it's been like, okay, how do we, how do I, <coughs> um, excuse me, how do I uh, figure out how this song is supposed to sound and work? And, right. And what's the, um, not formula, but what's kind of the, the form that this song is going to eventually take. Um, and that kind of uh, pre-assumes a, a quote-unquote final version of the song. Um, and what I've been learning over the past few years is, um, over the past decade of writing songs, um, is that there is no final version of the song. There's a recorded version. There's a live version. There's a demo version. Um, and so I, I think this time more than ever, yeah, I'm letting these songs lead you know, um, and I don't have, you know, with the solo acoustic stuff, especially like, I don't have to play in time. If I really want to enunciate and like point out a word to my audience, make a joke in the song, um, I can slow down a little bit. I can sing quieter. I can sing louder. I can, um, speed up a little bit and get through the lines that I am ashamed of, you know, and I haven't taken the time to go back and fix, uh, you know, like things like that. I, um, those moments, especially listening back to some of these demos, because um, I'm constantly making demos of these songs, and just like, okay, let's try to make this feel like I'm just playing the song um, and trying to notice, like, what are those words that stick out? Um, and then the fun part of that is, are those words repeat, repeated in other songs? And is that a good thing? Is that a through line? Is that is that a motif or a theme? Or is that just my lack of vocabulary? You know? Um, yeah. And that stuff is, is fun and exciting, you know? No, I, I but find that's that, where the real work is. I think that's the, that's the part where like, I'm thinking as a, as a journalist or a writer, that's the one thing I'm always like in the back of my mind thinking, Oh, have I used this word yeah. a thousand times? And is this just something that I end up using all the time because it's just maybe like more of my style, right? Yeah. Or is it because like, or is it the, the right word? Yeah. You know? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes yeah. it is the right word. Right. Um, it sucks when it <laughs> when you find the place for it to be the right word and you half-assed it in another thing and now you have to go change the other yeah. thing. You know? Yeah, <laughs> um, I've found myself in that position before. Yeah, that's the I know exactly that feeling because there, there'll be something where it's like 
this sounds okay with this word in it, mm-hmm. this description of whatever, but this is like where it should be. Yeah. And then you're like, do you, do I go back and just like nix that line? Do I go back and, yeah. you know, and of course like none of my shit has to rhyme. So, right. And, you know, like, <laughs> you know, you <laughs> can just, can. you That'd can take weird. out a whole line and it'd be fine. You know? Yeah. But, uh, no, it's, yeah. it's interesting. Cause there is, a, yeah, you're right. There is a form to songwriting and there's, there's like a, a, a pace to it and there are gaps to fill. Um, and there are parts of songs that you write the whole song. You're like, okay, but I need to go back and fix that. You know, there's a placeholder there or there's a gap there. Um, and that stuff's hard, but I, I really think that that sets apart the amateur from the professional Mm -hmm. songwriter. It's, it's, it's the people that are willing to do the editing and the work, um, you know, beyond just initial instinct. Right. Well, that's the, the part that I, I find the most interesting. I think we all love the idea of, Man, the song came to me to dream. Yeah. I wrote it down in 15 minutes, you know. Yeah. The devil had my hand right, you know, like yeah. whatever like, you know, any kind of narrative like that. Yeah. The the magic if you will. Yeah. But where it's become where, where I find like the older I get, the more I'm fascinated with the process, the that yeah. editing process because that to me it may be less glamorous. It may we may be stripping away the uh romanticism mm-hmm. of it. But like that's where all like the craft of it is. Is like that makes you, you know, no different than the the great architect or like the, you know, or, or something yeah. even as simple as like the guy who is a great carpenter. Sure, you know, yeah, it it definitely becomes more craft oriented. And um, no, I mean, if I did have the kind of song that came to me in a dream, you know, bring it <laughs> on, that'd, that'd be great. But yeah, it hadn't happened for me that way. Um, I've had a couple, you know, some that are easier than others and, um, you, you can, you can attribute, um, that to the muse, you know, just being there, or you can attribute that to the fact that I woke up and didn't scroll on Instagram and walked my dog first thing in the morning, you know, like, or I didn't have coffee. And so my, for some reason, my brain chemically feels more susceptible to be, you know, uh, right. you know, firing at a, at a quicker pace. So there are too many factors at, at play. Um, but I do know that, um, I've, I've, the songs that I've written have happened when I've sat down and written the song, you know? Yeah. Um, so as often as I can do that, I'm going to do it, you know? Um, I think that's the quote unquote magic, you know? Um, yeah, which is you know, I'd like to, I'd like to, be able to say that I sit down and do that every day, um, but I don't. Some days I'm counting t-shirts, and some days I'm you know, sitting in the van like today and just reading and whatever. Yeah, well, that's the, you know, it, it's always, I guess, like for me, whenever I I have a hard time starting stuff. Yeah. So, but once I get going, it's fine. Yeah. Um, but it is sometimes you, you, you can put off doing something and, and it, it may just be as easy as, you know, uh, Oh, I want to write today, but maybe, you know, you're putting it off because maybe you didn't have an idea or maybe mm-hmm. you don't have anything to write about. Um, I guess where, where I'm wanting want to go with this though, is like, you know, obviously the past couple of years we've been in the middle of this pandemic, yeah. which has made perhaps like there being more time for routine. Yeah. Have you, have you been able to like, I mean, you just talked about having 22 songs, more songs ready for the next record than yeah. perhaps 
other projects. But like, I guess like uh, yeah. uh, where I'm going with this is, did you feel like you, you were able to utilize time better or, or, yeah. or experiment better? Or yeah. The, try things differently. Totally. At the, um, at the height of like all this stuff, I kind of realized like, okay, I'm hanging out with basically my wife and my wife only. Um, just cause we're at home most of the time. And even if we get out, we're not hanging out with people. We're going to the grocery store or whatever. Um, so, uh, I started doing a lot of co-writing over zoom, um, which was weird and hard at first, but ended up being really good. Um, the good thing about it, um, is one, it taught me that co-writing is fun, especially with my buddies. Um, two, I think the songs are a lot better. Um, but also, those songs wouldn't have existed unless I'd sent that text and said, hey, how does Wednesday at 10 a.m. sound? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a level of accountability there, you know, saying having that appointment in the calendar and knowing, okay, like Brian, for example, he's got kids and a wife, and he's setting aside time to do this. Um, let's make sure that I come to the table prepared. And be a good, be yeah. a good steward and and appreciative of his time um, by, you know, spending the time really writing, um, and you know a lot of these songs have come through that, you know, method of writing, um, which is really cool. Um, for so many ways, it's communal. You know, like I, I got to make things with buddies, and we get to, you know, look at it on this side of writing and say, wow, that's cool. And this is why it's cool. It doesn't feel self-indulgent, you know? Um, but also just because of their sheer existence, you know, they wouldn't have existed without, without that time, you know, spent writing. So, um, that's been a big lesson. And I think if I'm able to, you know, set that time on the calendar for myself and say, great, I'm going to write at 10, shut the door and I'll be in here from 10 to whenever, you know, put it on your calendar. Right. Um, like that's a, uh, a, a very tangible way to make it happen rather than waking up and be like, what am I going to do today? Um, that kind of wandering basically generally ends with you sitting on the couch watching some, you know, another crime show that you've basically seen a million times. Yeah. You well, know? that's what, that's one of those things where I, I felt like, you know, the first few weeks of the pandemic, you know, all of us were wasting time like Noah. Yeah. Because we were kind of in this weird yeah. purgatory of, you know, in three weeks we'll be fine. In yeah. Three weeks, and you're just kind of yeah. led on by that. Yeah. So we, we were all just like wasting time in that way. And it wasn't until like you kind of figured out like, hey, I have to have a little bit of a routine. I want to break in just one more time to mention The Lubbock Way, a collection of wallflower vignettes. That's a book I wrote and released this past fall. As you probably guessed by the title, it's a collection of stories and thoughts about the Lubbock music scene circa 2015 to around 2017. I'd like to characterize it as an insightful peek into 35 nights, weekends, and episodes about various songwriters and bands like Red Shahan, Flatland Calvary, Randall King, William Clark Green, Brandon Adams, and many, 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 many others. It's currently on sale in the New Slang merch store. That's newslangpodcast.bigcartel.com. While there, you can also find t-shirts, koozies, coffee mugs, stickers, and a bunch of other stuff. 
This first edition has been exclusively limited to only 806 copies. Obviously, a nod to the Panhandle area code and all the 806ers out there. Links to the merch store, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, they'll also be in the show notes. Again, go buy a copy of The Lubbock Way, a collection of wallflower vignettes by me, Thomas Mooney. All right, let's get back to the episode. One of the things I guess like I've talked with other artists about is them maybe finding other thing, other artistic endeavors totally. in the pandemic that made have made their songwriting easier, made it, because I feel like at the same time, you're just kind of given this, we were all given this chunk yeah. of time to say, hey, you know, right, where we're, maybe that's like the, not the most important thing. Yeah. Did you did you end up finding other ways yeah. of, of getting? I mean, running for sure, just being outside and, and using my body. I mean, it's it's funny how how simple it is. What our what we need as humans, you mm-hmm. know, food, water, exercise, um, some hopefully some creative outlet. You know, whether that's your job or not. Um, my wife and I both have, have experienced that and, and um, got to embrace that, you know, and it's like, it's kind of like, no wonder we we feel a little like closer to each other, or at least the ones we love. Um, after all this, it's like, uh, it's good to slow down, you know, um, we live in a very fast paced, um, uh, productivity minded, environment um and i get sucked into it too like i listen to podcasts all the time about how to be more productive and um <clears throat> that kind of stuff is fun to listen to because I, I do want to squeeze out as much of this as much as i can out of this life you know um but at the same time there's a point of diminishing returns right you know and uh finding the balance between what i do for work and um spending time with my wife um is the big thing on my mind, you know, we've got a a baby coming in July and, um, thinking about leaving for tour, um, not just leaving my baby and leaving my wife, but leaving my wife to be with the kid without my help, you know, like, um, it's all so, uh, uh, intertwined, you know, um, so f- finding that balance and, and, um, uh, s- setting up kind of our, our life and setting up parameters, um, to where we both know we're, we're getting what we need while also I'm out hopefully making money on the road, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's an interesting thing, but, but yeah, I, f- I feel like solving those issues and, and be- being intimately in the trenches, um, with my wife has, has really shaped, uh me and my mindset towards my work, you know? Yeah. I think we all, we all kind of had a, of varying degrees of, of shifting our priorities Yeah, and, and understanding like, you know what? Like, and, and I, I feel like that for a lot of people it was, is, and this is going to be the simple example, but it's the, do I, do I have to be like at an office building right. to do right. my job? Or can I, a lot of people found out like that can be done at home. Right. Or, you know, now maybe that's, maybe that's what they actually needed. Yeah. You know, cause I've know a lot of people were just felt crank, you know, just they, since they were not getting, they, they, I guess they, they realized they thrive on human interaction. Yeah. Totally. With strangers. Totally. And 
for me, I was like, yeah, I mean, uh, whatever, yeah. take it or leave it. But uh, yeah, I think for, for some, like, yeah, that's what they needed. It's interesting. I, I think there's there's been an American format for so long, mm-hmm. um, and that was a little it was shaken the past couple of years. And it's interesting to see what how things land, you know, because they're still landing. Yeah, um, I think, you know, it's it, it'll be interesting to see how it all shapes out. But I, uh, uh, I'm interested to see. Um, you know, I, uh, my, my siblings and my, um, sibling spouses, um, and my, my parents and, uh, my friends all do different things, you know, none of whom are musicians. And so, <laughs> uh, my mind is also very much in the world of like, um, what's life going to look like for them. And, uh, you know, I get my, my sister and brother-in-law have two kids and live in Nashville I've got another sister and and brother-in-law who um, live and are moving to Alabama. Um, And the beautiful thing about my work is that I'll get to, I get to be the uncle, you know, that's there every once in a while um, and gets to visit them and come into their world when I'm on the road. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, And uh, both, both of those, both of their families and, um, uh, their their work, you know, and how they work, how my brothers in law work, especially, um, it's gonna be an interesting part of that equation, you know. Yeah, uh, I'll try and get you out on this right here. Yeah, uh, the self titled you worked with Bo Bedford, yeah, Texas gentleman. I, I feel like, and this is gonna be a compliment to to both of y'all, but I feel like that's that also that honestly does not feel like the the Texas gentleman I've heard previously cool. on previous records. Yeah. And I guess like what I'm saying with that is that um they would have like, you know, find find what what works for for your songs. Yeah. Um A how was it working with Bo uh a guy who's got, you know, a reputation of yeah. of being able to work with you know, a diverse cast of yeah. of artists yeah. and uh and and going forward, you know, this new record who who are you who you working with? Yeah, so uh, I'll first talk about Bo. Um, Bo's the man. You know, he's he's my neighbor and a and a close friend and a close friend to the fam my family. You know, um, the reason why he's so good at working with so many people is because he serves the songs really well. Um, Bo's entire spirit is about how can the collective we make something beautiful. Um, it's intoxicating to be around and so fun to be around. Um, you hang out with Bo, and it's like I just want to. I just want to think about art in the way that he does, you know, because um, he's not just a dreamer. He's, he also works his ass off, you know. Um, so that part of it's really fun. It's always fun being in a creative space with Bo. We've been writing a lot of these songs together over the past couple of years, um, but uh, he uh, 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 working with the gents was fun because he knows those guys so intimately, you know, used to tour with them and be part of the band. And so, um, being in the studio was fun because I got to see, I got to see them communicate in a way that I've never seen people communicate before. Um, Nick does a guitar part or, you know, we're tracking this live. So we track it live and he looks at Scott on bass and he's like, Scott, great at this one part. Cause you do blah, 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 blah. He's like, got it. Uh, he looks at Nick and he's like, Hey Nick, that was a little like, uh, more air clapped and then it should have been JJ Kale. Like, can you do the JJ Kale thing? And he, they know the references. They start referencing like different recordings of Grateful Dead songs and different recordings of the same songs and different tones. They're, they're, 
their vocab list of music, you know, um, is so at the tip at the tip of their tongue in the forefront of their mind um, that they can communicate in a quick and efficient manner. Right. It's so wild to see because I'm just sitting there with my guitar, like, uh, okay, like let's <laughs> let me just try to play in time and get a good take here. Um, so that's a really fun process to watch and be a part of. Um, I don't know what we're going to do for the new record. Um, I haven't picked a producer. Bo's definitely on the table. There are a bunch of other guys that I've thought about doing it with. Um, and it's fun because all these people that I'm thinking about making a record with, um, I know I can make make a damn good record. They're all people that I really respect and, and admire. And so um, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, there are so many versions of this record, um, but what it boils down to is like um, finding somebody that cares about these songs as much as I do and really wants to dig in deep and make a, uh, you know, front to back a record that that um, that really says something and, you know, makes people want to keep moving the needle, you know. Um, so I don't know what we'll do, but man, I'm excited about these songs and um, it's so fun to get to try them out live and see if people like them and see if they don't you know absolutely so yeah it's always about finding the you know like that right person who you know is just as excited as you and yeah. understands you know that, that final version or that final vision yeah you know uh, or the vision at least yeah you know because it's a hard part it, of it too because yeah. i mean i say i have a vision for the record but also it's like i like a lot of different stuff right you know um, I don't want to make a record that sounds like Leon Redbone because I can't play and sing like that and scat and whistle like that. But I think that stuff is cool. Yeah. You know, so where's the line drawn between how to serve the songs and who I want to be as an artist, you know, right. so yeah. finding somebody to help you guide, um, guide yourself along that journey is important. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the, you know, uh, not to, to ramble on, on this part, but like yeah. it's, it, this goes into that whole thing of like, who are you influenced by and like, who do you like? Yeah. Where like, you know, on, on Facebook in the early days, you'd see people just like listing a thousand artists. Yeah. And it's like, well, those are all the artists you like. You're maybe influenced by, right. <laughs> you know, a few of those guys, yeah. maybe not all of them. And there are but, certain things you know. I like about certain artists, right. You know, um, branding or just like the way they've built a team, mm -hmm. you know, I'm upset. I love Dawes, you know, I, I that's one of my favorite bands. Or his gold messenger is a great example, um, but I I'm not going to make that music, right? You know, I can't play guitar like Taylor Goldsmith, um, and I, I I don't have the same vocabulary or the same perspective that Mike Taylor does of of his gold messenger. So um, it's interesting to, to take those things and to appreciate them and embrace them and distill down what it is that I can learn from them and how to apply it to myself. Exactly. Yeah. Well. Thomas, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, thank you. I think you, you're the first Thomas, Thomas on here. So. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I'm glad to be the first. All right. Well, we'll see you down the road, man. Yeah, appreciate you. Thanks. Okay, that is it for this episode. Be sure to check out the songs and records of Thomas Chorba. Go stop on over and visit our presenting partners over at Desert Door, The Blue Light Live, and Charlie Stout Photography. Get yourself a copy of my book, The Lubbock Way, if you haven't just yet. And yeah, we'll see you for another episode of New Slang really soon.